Maroney, founder of Unbound Growth, and I have been kidnapped for the next 30 minutes by the Sassholes podcast. Help me out. Welcome to Sassholes. We are revenue ops with an edge. Decades of making interesting decisions. Jamie, Jason, and Pete are dedicated to helping aspiring sales leaders accelerate revenues with our no BS approach to sales leadership strategies and tactics. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. We'd like to thank Demand Farm, Winalytics, and Aaron J for their continued support. Demandfarm.com unlock key account growth with Demand Farm's large deal, key account, and relationship intelligence products. Go to demandfarm.com now to schedule a demo. Ask for Iron Man. Brent Keltner's Winalytics Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass. In five hours over five weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team build the mindset and skills for a new buyer environment. Kick off in product-driven selling versus authentic conversations for all go-to-market teams. Team-level sessions for self-assessment and team dialogue. All go-to-market team wrap-up to identify top go-to-market strategy adjustments. Go to winalytics.com now. It's time for shout-outs. Christopher Weimer, five years at Getty Images. Jeff Ignacio, starting a new gig as head of marketing sales ops at Forethought. Hey, congratulate Jared Johnson, six years at Task Us. Daniel Campbell, 15 years at Gearbook. Wow. Jordan Nettigan, one year at Strata Decision Technology. Patrick Kent, one year at Syndigo. Matt Vogel, got a new gig as Chief Executive Officer at DXVY Mental Health. Kathleen Pusatari, got a new gig as Sales Manager at Axiom. Rory Goldstein, new gig Sales Team Manager at Streamland Properties. Ryan Duffy, one year at Sense. Alex Ball, three years at LinkedIn. Matt Johnson, got a new gig as Enterprise Account Executive at Pepton. George Isaku, got a new gig as Assistant City Manager at the City of Lake Forest. Welcome aboard, George. Congratulate Chelsea Dishman, two years at Segment. And then a magnificent congratulation to Top Menu's new CFO, Mark Hoyt. For happy birthdays, Nikki Ivy, Greg Tackett, Leah Romick, another spin around the sun. Carol Mahoney, thank you so much for coming on this assholes today. I am excited to be here. I feel a little bit like I did on the playground when I was playing against all of the boys and flag football on the ice. So I'm a little nervous, but a little excited to see what happens. Carol, you used the mind to help people sell and lead better yes how the heck do you do that jedi mind tricks jedi mind mind tricks yes the force is with me no for the most part uh i had to go through the transformation myself in order to understand how it would work you know like you talk to any therapist they went into therapy because they're trying to figure out their own stuff and that is pretty much how it happened for me is i had let's just say a not so good perception of sales. My mission was to just make salespeople obsolete because they were pushy, slimy, and sleazy. I figured I could do enough internet marketing to make them obsolete. Well, owning my own business, I quickly learned that you still need a human being to talk to another human being to actually sell something. And so I had to very quickly confront my own mindsets towards sales. And I was also seeing my clients struggling with the same things. Like they were still using the Wolf of Wall Street tactics on internet buyers that just wasn't going to work anymore. 
And so I had to change my mindsets and I had to also then work with my small business owners and my other clients that I was working with for them to change their mindsets about not only what sales was, but what their role within it was. And so I started digging into the sociology and the psychology and the neuroscience and the data behind our mindsets and how it impacts our behaviors, but specifically to sales, because there are specific mindsets in sales that will get in our way from doing the things that we know we should do and can do, but when we get in the moment, don't actually do them. So I was kind of fascinated by that. Why do we not do the things that we know we should do and can do? And that's kind of how I ended up getting into being called the sales therapist, because oftentimes I say I've got a little couch here in the back when I'm working with all of my coaching and training clients. But um, it's that transformation myself that I had to go through that now I'm like, hey, this is how I did it. This is how I think you can do it. Now, you said mindsets that get in the way of doing what you should be doing. What what are the, can you define those? Or Yeah. So um, I actually use data from Objective Management Group. They've evaluated over 2.2 million sales professionals, and they've identified over the last 30 years six specific mindsets that get in the way of us executing on specific skill sets. The t- I won't go into all six, but... Yeah, talk- going through all six. All right, all six. So there's uh, the one that is probably one of the most common ones is supportive beliefs. Uh, and only 15% of sellers worldwide have supportive beliefs. In other words, beliefs that I can offer value, I can call on decision makers, I can sell on value, I can get referrals and introductions. These are the everyday thoughts that we have that get in our way, right? Like how many salespeople have you talked to that they go to pick up a phone and call someone and their first thought is this person doesn't want to hear from me. Those are the kinds of things that get in our way. So there's supportive beliefs. And then specifically, there's also what I call, they call them DNA elements. I call them mindsets because it's a group of beliefs and attitudes. And so there's the need for approval. Very human. We wouldn't survive today as human beings if we didn't have the approval of others to be a part of their tribe. But when you get into sales and your need for approval or the need for someone to like you or to see you a certain way gets in the way of you asking those tough questions that might confront people or get them upset. What are the very questions that buyers value because they want you to make them think differently about what they're thinking about their problems and solutions? The third one that I see most often is managing our emotions, right? Being getting like happy ears. This deal is going to close. The buyer's throwing signals. It's going to be the biggest deal of the quarter. And six months later, it still hasn't happened. So getting emotionally involved in an, in an opportunity or a conversation, we're so busy listening to the things in our heads, whether it's I don't know how to answer this objection. What am I going to say when they stop talking and you're not even listening to what they're saying or you're getting excited about what they're saying and you're still not actively listening? What happens is if you've ever heard a call where this happens, you're screaming through the call as a reviewer. Why aren't you talking about this? Why aren't you asking that? And it's not even occurring to them because they're so wrapped up in what's going on. The fourth one is what I call the how you buy is how you sell, right? So how we make, you've made a ton of decisions, how you make your decisions and how you make your purchase decisions will impact your ability to work with people who have similar issues. So say, for example, I used to be this person, you do a ton of research, you're checking every review, every consumer report site, you know, you're spending hours, you probably get a spreadsheet set up comparing all of the different options. And then when you narrow it down, you're you're going through and you're asking everybody, you know, you have to get the best price and discount. And so if you are someone who does that, when you make your decisions and you come across a buyer who does the same things, you're more likely to empathize. Yeah. This is a big investment. I would think it over too. You go ahead and think it over. I know you'll eventually figure it out and buy from us. Not going to work. And then there is the comfort discussing money. There's that 
thing where we get to the call where we have to talk about ROI and budget and you know, 40 something percent, I think it's 44 or 46% of divorces happen because people could argue about money because they can't have conversations about money. I think there was also a study that showed that people would be more likely to be comfortable talking about sex and politics in a group than they would with money. So this is something that gets in our way of salespeople when we need to sell on value, when we need to ask the cost of consequences of a problem, when we need to ask about resources in order to do that. And a lot of times it's, you know, people will say, well, we haven't figured out the budget yet, or it's this. We just accept that as what it is instead of digging deeper to see if we can find other ways and places for them to come up with the money to solve this particular problem in the best way possible. So did I list all six? I think I did. So that is six specific mindsets that get in the everyday functions of being able to sell with buyers in a meaningful and valuable way, which is what they demand today. Because so if num- you're not, you're Number done. three, I think is interesting to me. So that's the emotional one, the one where they get bought in and they're all, they got happy ears. Yeah. So are you saying that they shouldn't have happy ears? Are you saying, like what I see is a lot of times reps all over rotate because this deal is going to make or break their entire year. And therefore all the other deals mm-hmm. get pushed. And like, no, they don't spend any time. And all they do is wake up every morning thinking this deal is going to get them to the Holy land. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what you're talking about? Cause I don't mind the excitement over a deal as much as I mind the fact that there's 30 other accounts that they could be calling into and they forget to go well, after. That's, that's a symptom. For sure. Um, That's one way that it can manifest. Another way, the most common way that I see it happen is, yes, they ignore all of the other deals because of the one that they're so excited over. Um, And the other time what I see it happen is that when they're in the calls themselves and they think this is a great opportunity and they're thinking to themselves in their head. And that means they're not actually present in the moment. They're not actually listening and actively listening to that person. And so they're missing things. They're missing cues. They're missing questions that they should be digging and drilling down into. And buyers sense it. You know, like, you know, when someone's not really listening to you and there is nothing that ticks buyers off more than not feeling heard by a salesperson. I feel like it's also experience, right? Because a lot of times they get excited about a big deal. They've never sold a big deal like that before. And therefore they think it's all good. And they're like, guys, there's a lot of obstacles that come in the way. Like, especially nowadays with InfoSec and Mm -hmm. uh, privacy, technical issues, you know, all that stuff. And they just seem to gloss over that. Yeah. Well, so you, the, the way that we've been talking about it, getting excited about the big deals, not really listening on the calls, that is one way that it shows up. Um, But it also shows up for experienced reps where I see that happen as well. And it, you know, especially where, for example, they have to sell with multiple, maybe in the, their team members or others. And so they get kind of wrapped up in all of that and trying to manage it. Or when stre- when pressure comes down on them, especially the newer they are, the more likely this is to happen that they get wrapped up emotionally. But these are the these mindsets are fundamental and they happen both in new and experienced salespeople because things change, right? Like you may have think that you have mastered this mindset, but environment circumstances changing. A lot of people are seeing that now with the looming recession and global economic downturn that's happening. These additional pressures can cause these things to bubble up again and cause issues that they thought, well, this wasn't an issue for me, but now what's happening is that the circumstances are triggering it in a bigger way. And so they have to re-up their game. They have to double down on the fundamentals again. Carol, sales is a mind game, and we're talking about the mind here. Mm-hmm. A couple terms are coming to mind. Self-concept, motivation, mm-hmm. long-term motivation, 
self-limiting beliefs. Somebody comes onto a sales team, shouldn't they already be motivated to have that mindset? Or can you teach that mindset? Because a lot of problems that I've seen happen is somebody will come on and they'll have this concept that I am only worth $70,000. That's a lot of money. My parents never made more than that. And once I hit $70,000, I'm going to take the foot off the gas. And that's it. It's sort of like a, a football coach at a pregame speech. He gets everybody fired up, but that motivation only lasts a couple minutes. And it's got to be that long-term motivation that kicks in. Mm-hmm. Do you have to recruit those types of people that have that motivation or can you teach it? So, yes, first and foremost, you should be recruiting for those types of people. Uh, And I I was just listening to your episode with Janice Jordan and, and she hit it right on the nail where if you hire the right people for the right roles to begin with using data, then you're less likely to encounter these issues later on because they're the right fit for this environment, this buyer in this market. Now, can you teach someone? You can offer it to someone, but they have to be in the place where they're ready to and open to receive it. So, you know, one of the first things that I do, we, we do an evaluation, but before we do the evaluation, I actually go through a goal setting workshop with everyone who's going to be involved in the training. Because if we're going to be, if we're talking about changing our mindsets and we're talking about changing behaviors as a result, there needs to be a personally motivating reason for the person who's going to be going through it to do it to begin with. Because we're talking about mindsets and beliefs that most people have developed over their lifetime. Their parents were this way. You know, they grew up in certain economic situations and circumstances. Maybe they had trauma. Again, this is therapy. But all of these are things that if you have a reason to make the change, if you have a vision for the future that you're willing to do whatever it takes to make that happen, the cognitive dissonance is what they call it in psychology, the bridge, the gap between where you are and where you want to be, if you can help them to identify an internally intrinsic motivating reason to make the changes, then they will do whatever it takes to reach that. Not everybody will be able to identify that. There will be those people, and I come across them where we go through the goal setting and they're like, yeah, okay, sure, this is this is what I want to have, and this is why it's meaningful to me and why it aligns with my values. And they kind of put a half of an effort into it because they're like rolling their eyes in their head. I can hear it from over here. And we we give them their evaluation report, and the responses that we get back from those who really haven't identified those goals is this isn't me. I don't know what question made me say they come up with reasons and excuses why it doesn't apply to them. And so what that's one way that we can quickly determine, all right, who's going to actually make these behavioral changes, who's going to do whatever it takes to reach those goals. And then we can support those people. But then there are going to be those that don't. And usually they end up leaving when they realize that the standards are going to be raised and they're going to be held accountable to them. It is what it is. Not everybody's ready at that time. Now, you also consult leaders, new leaders. And uh, now this is a PG podcast bordering on R, but could you flash us your shirt there and tell us what that's all about? So this is the shirt. Um, And so this is, it's upside down, obviously, because the person looking down and reading the shirt can be reminded that it is not about me. 
And I, I actually designed the shirt for salespeople because I was repeating it in my coaching calls over and over. They don't care what you want. They don't care what you think. They care about what's in it for them. It's not about you. The questions you're asking are all about you. The statements you're giving are all about you and your products. And as I started working with salespeople and then leaders and managers and all the way up through the top of the organization, of course, it's something that is a theme that runs all the way through. So, you know, how you, it's not just how you train and coach your sellers that is going to impact them, but it is your own behaviors and mindsets as a leader that is going to impact them. I actually did a, um, an analysis of that OMG data because I wanted to find out, like you've heard that phrase, as goes the manager, so goes the team, but we see it happen, but is it true and how much is it true? So those six mindsets that I had mentioned earlier, I actually analyzed those mindsets of the sales leaders because they impact the team and looked at how likely is the team to then also have these mindsets. And so, for example, that first one we mentioned, supportive beliefs, we think the thoughts in our head just stay in our head. Well, they don't because leaders who have non-supportive mindsets, their team is 355% more likely to have the same non-supportive mindsets. But the good news is that leaders that do have the supportive mindset, that 15%, those are the ones that are passing it on to their teams at a percent of a thousand. So a thousand percent more likely their teams will have those positive mindsets. So the positive beliefs have a huge impact on their team. And so as leaders, when you embrace this, it's not about me mindset. It is all about the buyer. It is buyer first. When you like carry that down through the organization, that is how your salespeople are going to start to think and behave with your buyers. And I can't, we could go up for a whole episode about the data and research behind what buyers value, but it is singularly active listening. Tell me about my industry and something I didn't know. Offer me an insight that I didn't know and help me to think differently about my problem and solution. Don't just pitch your solutions to me and then leave me to figure it out. Not about me. Carol, what is a buyer first seller? A buyer first seller is a salesperson who puts their buyers in uh, needs and wants and interests before their own, before their quota, before their product, before their service. A buyer first seller is even willing to tell a buyer, I don't think that this is a fit for you. You should probably go do this instead. That is a buyer first seller. How do you teach that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> because what you're saying is don't be selfish. Yeah. Are, are people just in, either they're selfish or they're not? And that is a recruiting thing or? None of us are black and white. None of okay. us are set in stone. And we have, I I wear this shirt so I can remind myself as well, right? Like we, we study and teach the things that we struggle with the most. Well, here's my big dirty secret. So it is something that can be learned. It is something that can be taught. There is no, you're always this way or you're always this way. Otherwise we would still be drooling babies at two years old, right? So we need to be able to understand that we can all grow and change at any point. It's just what is that point and what is it gonna take sometimes for us to get there? And unfortunately, a lot of times it takes us to hit some really rock bottom times in order for us to be willing to face these long held types of beliefs and mindsets and realize that. Um, this was actually something that came to, to light when I was coaching with someone and it, they felt like everything that they did was wrong. Like they couldn't do anything right. And I said, have you ever seen the Seinfeld episode, the summer of George with George Costanza? And he decided that his life sucked so bad that he was going to do the opposite of everything that he thought he should do. This is kind of how the, uh, the, the idea was born for me is that if we do the opposite of what we think we should do, because we are 50% of us pretty much are not doing it, what will happen? 
And so when I started coaching sellers that way, like do the opposite of what you would normally do. They started to see results. And so the summer of George, buy your first seller, making it not about ourselves was born. And I started digging into, well, okay, so this is working. I can observe it, but why? That's when I started digging into the science and psychology of it. So anybody can learn it if they're willing and open to do so. So I think that's interesting. You know, I was I was reading a book the other day and they said that pre-COVID, 50% of the buying of, of big purchases were done more emotionally. Like there was an emotional attachment because people were going to Super Bowl events. They were going to these events. They're going to dinner, lunches, and they just got out, caught up in the whole sales process. Nowadays, it's 50% on trust. Whereas mm. before it might've been 25% on trust because you're selling through a 14 inch screen. You've got to trust the person and the way to be trustworthy and transparent is to, yeah, I think yeah. that, doesn't that sort of align with what you're saying? I mean, I, have exactly. you noticed that change now more than before? Or yeah. do you think it's always been there? I, I feel like it might've always been there, but we've been able to sugarcoat it with, the uh, if you think about the 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 environment that we're in right nobody trusts governments anymore we don't trust medicine anymore because of all of the conflicting news and everything that we're getting from it we don't know who to trust and so when we're in those times of uncertainty and not know who to trust or who to turn to that makes it even more valuable to us when we can find people that we trust um and and actually to your point about how does not about me align with building trust uh, there's a book uh, written by Robin Drake, who was an FBI behavioral analyst and also worked for the CIA and counterterrorism groups. And he was he actually wrote a book called Not About Me and how he does his work with those particular groups. And he also wrote a book called The Code of Trust, which is absolutely applies to us in sales of how we communicate with others, how we put their interests before our own is exactly how we build relationships and trust. And in sales, it's just so much more difficult because we're so brainwash to think our sales process, our product, our value proposition, and we completely ignore the buyer where they are in their process and what matters to them. Only can we sell them on what, what we want. Gotcha. Your company, Unbound Growth, when you go into a company, what is the first thing that you're correcting on the sales side and then the leadership side? So, when I go into an organization, typically they bring me in because they're either trying to get into a new market. So they have a new type of sale or, or that they're doing. So like mid-market to enterprise or startup to mid-market. Um, or this is the time of year where they all realize, oh, crap, nobody's hitting their numbers. Everything that we've tried hasn't worked yet. You know, deal creation is down. Uh, deal delays are up. Forecasts are off. And margins, what margins? Um, and so the... The thing that I typically get brought in for is we need to hire salespeople to replace the crappy ones that we have. And what I typically will say is, well, how? Sh what makes you say that they're crappy? Have you trained them? Have you coached them? <laughs> What's your sales process? What's you know? How have you defined your buyers and your market to them? And they're like, uh, nothing. We've kind of left them to their own. I'm like, well. Okay, so let's figure out what's going on there. And so then we do an evaluation to understand the gaps, the strengths, the weaknesses. How does the systems, processes, and leadership impact the team? Why aren't they performing? Who can improve? Who will improve? And what will it take? And how long? What kind of ROI can you expect? And then if they say, all right, well, okay, you probably do need to hire some new salespeople because you haven't been putting the right people in the right roles to begin with. And so I start by 
I actually start by understanding who is their buyer, who is the market that they're trying to find a seller, because I'm kind of like a matchmaker. So I want to understand everything I can about their buyers, create an ideal customer profile, identify the trigger events, identify the places where that salesperson is going to need to have a lot of knowledge around, and then identify what are the characteristics of an ideal seller that's going to align with this buyer, this market, the, the resistance that they're going to face, the objections that they're going to have to handle, and then creating an objective hiring process to bring that person in and then onboard them by starting with who the buyer is and the buyer's pain points instead of product. Um, and so it's typically an evaluation of the team. And then that helps us to identify the gaps, the roadmap, the short-term initiatives, the long-term initiatives, because every, you know, it's like our bodies, you know, like one part of our nervous system impacts the rest of it. And so I think of this as like, we're doing a diagnostic test of the, the sales body and finding out where the symptoms are coming from and why and address the root causes. I got a saying for you, Carney. I'm dropping this one here first. Ever hear the saying, all hat, no cattle? No. Uh -huh. Okay. They say that in Texas when, you know, they somebody thinks they're a cowboy by putting on a, a hat. Okay. Yeah. All hat, no, no, no cattle. Well, what, what I'm hearing by doing this podcast, it seems like, when you have to go into a place, Carol, it's like these companies are all technology and no process. Mm, yeah. Right. So, so they're they're doing their Franken stacks. They're stacking up all this stuff. Okay, I bought this technology, and it's gonna input. I don't know what's in the middle, and then output. Yeah. It's in that. Because it's. Go what ahead. happened? They buy the technology because they think that the technology, because the technology has a process. And so that's going to be our process, but it doesn't align with our market and our buyer and our internal system of the way that we do things. So it's, it's then, oh, it's the technology's fault. No, no, I, I totally agree with that. I think you're trying to like, I agree that technology should help operationalize the process and the strategy that the company has decided as their best go-to-market motion, mm -hmm. but the technology should not dictate your go-to-market. Uh, I think what's happened in the last decade and why we have Frankenstack or drunken tool confetti is that all these operators go in there and say, man, if I just had this technology, we'd be able to fix this. Like, no, because now they've got like 12 interfaces. They're having reps jump into five different places to enter in one thing. You've got to, the only thing you should operationalize is the mundane, and then you should operationalize the strategy um, so that the reps can use it in an efficient manner and not have multiple interfaces. That's my take on it. So I know you were trying to say, Carney, you and technology. No, I don't think technology, it shouldn't be technology first. I think you should do chair sides with reps and then add technology to understand where are where is the pain in their process. You know where well, I here, see hold, hold on, Carol, I'm going to step on you here. I'm going to ask you then, what are the top three processes that you have to work on? If you had a Mount Rushmore of processes, <laughs> one, two, three, you're going to go into a company. Let's just start with a founder-led company that's starting to grow. What would be the top three processes that you would go in and you would suggest, hey, you got to implement this right away? Well, so the first process is what is the buyer's journey process, right? absolutely number one sun around all everything else should revolve and then 
understand how does your selling process align with their buying journey process or buying process to keep it short. So buying process, selling process, and then coaching and training process. How are we going to develop our people to meet these expectations in the process? That is also a system and a process. Top three. And do you see it different from a founder led and then the founder is left and you have a company trying to carry on without the founder or it's the same for both? It's the same for both, because if you don't put your buyers first, then you're just guessing as to what you should be doing, no matter who's in the front seat. And same thing with the sales process and the coaching and training and development of your people. Like those those have to be the top three things, whether it's a founder led, a new CEO or uh, whether you're no matter what, that is the repeatable processes that you need to be constantly keeping a thumb and a pulse on because they're going to evolve. They're not going to be, all right, we said it this year and this is going to be the, it for the next five years. You should be evaluating those at least every year, if not every six months. So everybody's getting laid off now, Carney, or, yeah. you know, the, uh, the laggards are starting to kick in. Can you really bring in a Carol and say, uh, okay, I'm not going to hit my number, but uh, here's a Hail Mary. Come on in, Carol. And if you don't do it, you suck and I'll never hire you again. Do well, you see that going? I, honestly, like I know you said we're on the precipice of a recession earlier on. I mean, we're in the recession. We're, we're in one. Yeah, we're in one. I don't care if you want to redefine it or not, but we've been in it for nine months. Um, sales, orgs. So if two years is a typical length of the recession, right? Who knows what this one will be, but I think two years is probably legit, which means we're almost halfway through. Mm. Um, but there's going to be a lot of layoffs going on. What's going to happen is rev orgs are going to start ramping up well before the two years because they're going to be demands on them to grow out of a recession. And so, yeah, I, I think if you're in the, if you're selling to the rev org, which I imagine you are, um, the, the 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 pain has been uh, felt by a lot of the medium sized companies. The large companies are probably still going through layoffs, mm -hmm. but they're going to be um, looking for ways to grow more efficiently and better, and have better productivity. So they're going to be buying. I mean, I'm seeing it on on our end already. Well, the sil silver lining is you can cut away if you if you have a good differentiation process. What really sucks is you keep the people that you like and you get rid of the ones that you don't quote unquote like subjective. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you don't have a differentiation process, how do you know who should stay and who should go? Because that's when you get into surprises and that is the worst thing that you could, nobody should be surprised that, Hey, I'm in the bottom 5%, the bottom 10%. What are your thoughts, Carol, on differentiation and budget, you know, budget time you have to make cuts. Okay, so this is this is going to be a bit of a soapbox rant. The big like we already said it, the biggest mistake I see companies make making these decisions is they keep the ones that they like. The second biggest decisions I see they make is they make their decisions based on historical performance. Okay. So that is like uh, deciding that you're going to keep all of the gear to go up a mountain hike, that you're going to use that same gear to then now go across the desert with the same people different environment, different structure. So if you're using historical performance to determine future success in a recession, it ain't the same ballgame. It's got to be different criteria, right? So that's the other mistake that I see companies make. Now, I'm sure I'll get pushback on that, and I hope I do. But here's the other thing that I see happen is that they will, this, we're just going to keep the top 25%. Um, and when the, what they're not doing is actually using the data and objectively determining 
who has the mindsets, who has the skill sets to improve and can, with coaching and training, not only become a top performer, but a top performer. For me, a top performer isn't someone who's good in a good economy and a good market. A top performer is someone who, no matter what the market, what the buyer is, can adjust to that and consistently perform. Not the one that landed the big account or that has the good territory who has been doing it for 10 years and all he has to do is pick up the phone and call his buddy. That's not a top performer in my eyes. And so looking at your middle of who is it that with the right role, training and coaching could really exceed here, those are the ones that I want to make sure that we keep because what a lot of companies are doing is they're actually letting go of the potential that they have to make it through because they're making these, you know, but bottom line cuts, we pay this person this much, we pay this much, they're not performing, we're just going to cut out the top or the bottom or whatever. Makes no sense. If you had to do a stack rank, because mm-hmm. the problem with stack ranks is that's all from the work that was done in the past. You have nothing to gauge on what's going to happen in the future, depending on the sales cycle. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you got to give equal weight to what you've done in the past, but what do you have coming in in the future? Uh, how would you, do you have like a top, three or four criteria that we that you would look at to stack up so somebody can know they're they're in the bottom five ten percent yeah so we actually have uh what we use is something that's called a smart sizing tool and so essentially what we're doing is we're evaluating the team but we're evaluating the team not just on performance in the past but we're also then evaluating them on the updated profile and environment that they're going to have to perform in and then matching their strengths and their not so good you know, areas of improvement and the the severity of those, because some have a little bit, some have a lot, and then aligning that with what is the profile that we need them to be able to operate in and can they still, you know, is there opportunity for them to improve there or are we asking them to be, you know, square peg, round hole, wrong seat on the bus and we need to move them into a different role that they're going to be better suited for. Or is there no role here and this is someone that we have to let go because, you know, if you have someone in your organization who's who's maybe performing okay, but they're not in the right role and they're beating their head against the wall, you're doing them a disservice by trying to keep them there. Let them go because there's another opportunity that they're better fit for somewhere else. Um, so that's kind of how I look at it. When when you have to downsize, that's that is the best way to do it. Is is the strengths, the weaknesses, the updated role, and comparing that to where we need to go in the future and who are going to be the people that are going to get us there. Part of the process is, is feedback. Do you have a recommended uh, feedback scenario, one-on-ones, once a week, every other week? What you know, with leaders and and you know the the, the sales reps. How how would you do it, or how do you recommend companies do it? So one of the ways that we do feedback is through the evaluation that we do. We actually have salespeople give us feedback about leadership. And then we also have leadership give us feedback about, you know, what they feel that they're doing, right? That's one of the ways that we know that 46% of sales managers think they're doing great coaching, but only 13% of their people actually agree. Um, And so that's one way that we do it is objectively through a third party. But then I also encourage, and that's one of the things that I coach both sellers and managers and leaders to do is how to ask for feedback, Right. Um, a lot of times we ask for feedback and we're really just seeking validation. Well, what did you think of this? Was this good? You know, was this valuable to you? Instead of asking specific feedback, such as uh, if you're a salesperson and you go to your manager and you give them a piece of your call and say, I really feel like I missed a question here. What questions do you think I should have asked here? That's specific. That's something actionable, not a how do I feel about this or how do you feel about this? But 
what can I do specifically on this particular thing to improve the outcome that we're both looking for? Hey, uh, Kara, I'm looking behind you and I, you know, my, my eyes aren't that good, but I think I see a book from the Gallup organization called Now Discover Your Strengths. I'm sure I see it there. They have a list of questions to, I don't know if I see it or not. Sure. <laughs> but, I don't think it's there, but I'll have to go double check. They're, they're, You're just making up artists. I, I'm creating my, I'm creating my great question my narrative. Yeah. But, gonna zoom in, you know, and they're going to be like, all right, what actually was he looking at? <laughs> but, but they have uh there's a book called now discover your strengths. And there's a, a, a questionnaire that they ask, because like you said earlier, people don't quit companies, they quit their manager and a great uh, questionnaire that they had was like the first question, I think it was 13 questions. And I, and I gave it to my sales force because I'd like to get feedback. You know, when you've got several hundred people, it's like, you know, what do you need to focus on? The first question is, do I have the things I need to do my job? Right. Okay. And then the other questions, and I just left the comment section, you know, mm -hmm. and it's anonymous. And they would, uh, the reps would fill it out. And then I would have something objective to work with on my leaders that says, look, man, this could be true or not true, but it's perception and perception is reality. These are the things we need to work on. And this evolved into a, a sales training. When you said you use objective data from a third party, like what are the questions that they are asking of their the sales reps to talk about the leadership. Is it just a one-time thing or is it an ongoing? Okay. Yeah, it is. on. So it is, it, it is an ongoing thing. So I'll have them do the assessment and then I have them actually do it every year after that. So we can measure progress. And I do it every year because, you know, when you're going through behavioral change in order for it to stick and really solidify and master it, it, it takes several months in order for that to happen. So we, we do it as a year because over a year of training and coaching, we should have seen some changes here. And then we ask those questions again. And there are multiple questions on, you know, what type of coaching or training do you get? What type of support do you get? When do you get it? How often do you get it? Um, and because this is a, a, a a compliance situation. We also want to make sure that we're asking the question so that we we get consistent answers. And so if there's 13 major questions, then there's going to be other variations of some of those same questions to make sure that we're getting consistent answers and not um, like there's a bias that happens when someone asks a question, when someone answers it, there's biases that are going back and forth. So we ask it in multiple ways. And then there's also informal ways to do that. Um, rather than an objective assessment, then we also have the ability of doing, um, you know, if we're doing quarterly reviews, for example, and we'll have maybe not 13 questions, but maybe three to five different questions that are specific to what that salesperson needs and is working on and how they feel that. So for example, every three months, I sit down with my coachees and we look at what was their original action plan, the things that we decided to work on together, where has progress been made, where have they mastered things, where do they still need to continue to make progress, and what's our plan going forward for that, so that there's constantly this feedback loop of how do I continue to help you to develop? And that is something that happens or should happen at every level of the organization between seller and manager, manager and leader, and leader and executives. So it could be as, as simple as a net promoter score. Would you recommend your boss to a friend? Would you recommend the company, right? Yes or no. It just Because like you said, you do it quarterly because some companies don't do the reviews anymore. And I'm scratching my head. If you don't do the reviews, 
when you do a sit down and you're physically writing something out, then it becomes real versus this audible or even right. an email, you know, it's a sobering uh, conversation. Uh, how often should you give feedback to the reps again? And how often should the leadership get feedback from their directors or vice presidents so there are no surprises? If we're talking feedback in terms of performance, like how you know, do they have the resources, performance, things like that, then I would say at a, the very least every quarter. I would like to see that done so that we can keep it short and we can keep it in real time. And, you know, and depending on your organization, you might even decide you want to do that on a monthly basis, depending on how quickly things happen. Um, but at least a quarterly basis, because a formal review. On a not a, no, no, more of a uh, like a quick 15, 20 minute. Uh, what guy was talking like we have an action with my sellers and managers, we have an action plan. So this is the plan of improvement of development that we're working on together. And then every three months we're reevaluating and looking at that. So every three months sitting down, where do you need to, where do you feel you need to continue to work? How do you feel I can continue to support and help you? What specifically do we need to dig into for feedback? And then using that as the opportunity to get feedback on how do you, you know, how are these specific things working for you? What can we do differently or more of? Do you have an objective way to determine what a training should be on? Because sometimes some sales managers say, oh, I'm going to do this. And then the reps say, I don't need that. I need this. Uh, how... How can you have an objective way to determine what should you work on next with your team? Well, and, and, and it's important to be objective, right? Because there's this thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect where, you know, as the salesperson, we think that our strengths are this and our weaknesses are this, but because of our inexperience, we have a completely biased view of that. But the same thing works for sales managers. Once they've mastered something, they can't always understand why it's so difficult for everyone else. And so, you know, there's two sides to that coin. So objectively, that's why I use um, those the data from those 2.2 million sales professionals because it can be it is predictive of what it takes to be a successful salesperson. And so by evaluating the whole team and the manager, I can then break it out so that each manager has a subset of that data for their team. And they can say, all right, 80% of them are struggling with active listening and asking really good questions and getting to decision makers. So we know that they don't know what to do and they also need to have a mindset shift around this. So this is the training that we're gonna develop over the next three to six months for this particular team. This team over here, on the other hand, they're struggling with relationship building and selling on value. And so we're going to focus the training on this for them so that the majority of the team is getting wherever their biggest weaknesses are. They're getting the training on knowing what to do, but then they're also getting the reinforcement coaching to actually make the behavior change happen and taking what they know and actually doing it in the moment. So not everybody in your sales org and every team and every territory needs the exact same training because they are all different subsets. And so we categorize and group those together to come up with short-term and long-term, what do we need to focus on in order to get them where they want to be? A lot of new leaders listen to this show, Carol, and they just took on a team or they just had cutbacks and they got moved up into leadership. And you'll have believers and non-believers because hey, we have to operate a different way. And they brought you in, Carol, and say, look, this the, the old process isn't working. We need to do a new process. How long do you give the non-believers before you ask them to move on? I give them about six weeks, four to six weeks. And what is the communication that you, 
Do you tell them beforehand, hey, look, we're going to do something new? Because, again, we don't want surprises. So should the new leader say, look, this is going to be something new? Either you're in or you're out. I'm going to give you six weeks to figure this out. I'm going to check back with you in three weeks. How would you go about doing that if you're a new leader? So it's very important how you position this with your team and how you roll it out to your team. Because if it's rolled out in a way where like, you know, we're going to do this evaluation. And if you don't fit the bill, then you've got six weeks to straighten your stuff out or you're out of here. That's going to just throw a whole wrench into the works of all of this. And so what I recommend that they do is actually, like I was describing before, treat it as a diagnostic test, like you go to the doctor kind of a thing. And so the way that I typically position it with new leaders is to say, look, uh, I'm a new leader and I have as much to learn as the rest of you do. And with that, what we're going to do is actually bring Carol in and she is going to objectively evaluate us so that we can understand what our strengths are, the things that are going to continue to carry us through. But then also, where are the areas where we need to improve and that we need to work on together over the next three to six months? To do that, we're going to take this questionnaire and we're going to go through a couple of workshops and then together we're going to decide what kind of training and coaching that we all need in order for us to make the developments and the changes in order to reach our goals. So it's rolled out in a in a way that it's not a judgment, it's not a get your stuff together or get out kind of a way. It's a, all right, you've identified that you have goals that you wanna reach. We're dedicated to helping you to get the resources to do that. And this is how the steps that we're going to go through. Now, what happens is that when we go through the evaluation process, we go through the goal setting process, that's when things start to rise. Like we start to see who are the ones that are going to resist, who are the ones that aren't going to want to make these changes. And we don't say to them directly, look, you either need to get in or you need to get out. It, it more becomes we give them the avenues in order for them to easily leave because they're not, it, we hold them accountable. If they don't want to be held accountable, they don't want to be doing this, then they're going to leave. Are you essentially putting them all on plan for six weeks? <laughs> or do you put them on six weeks? Do you then put them on plan? Kind of. Um, I mean, we're coming up with an action plan. Uh, I mean, if you want to call it that, it is a performance mm-hmm. improvement plan. But so, at the end of six weeks, they're gone, right? If Is that how it sort of works? Well, and so it, what happens at the beginning of it is that we lay out, okay, we know that you've been underperforming. Uh, we know that these are the strengths that, that you have, but we also know that these are the areas of improvement that you need to make. And so we give them the choice, like, you know, do you want to be put into a different role? Do you want to try and make these changes? And if they say yes, and then we say, okay, so here's the plan that we have for the next four six, eight weeks. These are the things that are going to need to happen in order for these milestones to be hit. These are the things that we're going to work on together. But everyone is put on that, right? Everyone yeah. is put on that. Everybody. Man, I think it's great, but at the same time, I would see it as everyone's put on plan. <laughs> right? Yes. Like- I, I've never thought of it that way. So, I, and I can see how some people would, but it is it is more of a, uh, this is I'm your- sure it's delivered more tactfully than yeah. I would deliver it, Ben. Or Look. Pete would be like, you're on plan. No, I, I know how people yeah, yeah. No, you no pips. All right. If you only use them and a hundred percent of the people that you put somebody on a pip gets canned, yeah. you're misusing the pip. Okay. You have to be consistent. If you're not meeting what we agreed upon, you have to go on this. It's not, well, some people are on it. Some people are not yeah, on it. it. All on, all off. Now, I Carol, think that's key. I think that's key. What you said is if if a pip means you're gone, then you're misusing the pip. So, like, how often would you, like, Pete, just out of curiosity, how often would someone survive a pip in your world? Well, 
there has to be predetermined objectives and it's either you get it or you don't because look, I can live with somebody not hitting their number. I really can. If I see the work is being put in that I will bet they will make it in the future. Okay. What I can't have on the team that kills my culture is somebody not performing and not working and everybody looking at it and say, what the hell are you doing? Okay. So that that's, that's what I cannot believe. Carol, when they bring you in, I mean, are you the bad guy? It's like, all right, I'm the, <laughs> whoever brought you in is too weak to get rid of these people. And they bring you in. Well, Carol said, you know, you're the grim reaper that goes in with the sickle. They don't do that. Do they? I won't let them because they, they ultimately have to own the fact that this is a problem that they created. And, you know, I often say a lot of times companies bring me in to solve the problems that they created themselves. And I won't be their bad guy because in order for them to be a good leader themselves, they have to own these things and own the impact of these things. And so if you and that's actually one of the questions that I ask during my my sales process is, you know, we have to let someone go. How do you plan on handling that? How do you plan on handling that? And I'm, of course, going to support them and give them all of the resources that they need. But that is ultimately their team and their call. Um, and I, I on the PIP thing as well is one of the things that whenever a PIP is going to happen, that coaching plan is identifying leading indicators. So what you were just saying, Pete, if someone is doing the work, if they're meeting those milestones and they're, you know, they're doing it, but they haven't hit the outcome yet, but they're on their way there, then I'm going to definitely keep them on versus the person who's just making excuses about why they can't do this. It's the company's fault. It's the market, blah, 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 blah. Now you come in, you write in and I'm sure you're being called every name in the book. Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. And you're waving your magic wand. Part of that magic is you got to get buy-in from whoever the sales managers are, because once you leave, okay, your influence sort of goes with you. And then all that's left is the authority of the leaders continuing your process. How do you get the buy-in from the leaders to say, hey, this is what you should be doing versus what you were doing in the past? So a lot of leaders that managers that I'm working with are burnt out. They're working 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week. You know, one described it as I feel like I am drowning, treading water with no life vest and not making a solid move in any direction. I've had others say to me, my worst fear is that my shortcomings are going to be the collateral damage to my team, that I'm somehow the reason why they're not succeeding. Um, those are the managers that I see that are the ones that make the most impact that they actually hold on to this as a lifesaver and become top selling teams. It's the managers that are like, they just need to get it together. They just need to do what I tell them. They, I don't understand why they're not getting any of this. Um, those are not typically, those are the managers that I will typically get a lot of resistance from. Um, but for managers that are just starting off and new and doing this, when I'm working with them to get their buy-in is really digging into, you know, just as I would with the sellers, what are your personal goals? What are you trying to achieve in managing this team? You know, what are the things that bring you joy that are valuable to you and putting those into some type of a goal for themselves and then creating a coaching plan and a training plan for them. How are they coaching? How are they managing their time? How are they having their sales conversations? Are they making it not all about themselves? All of these are the things that I'm teaching them to do. And just the same way I would get the sellers buy-in is how I get the managers buy-in. And oftentimes I have to, you know, share with them the, you don't have to eat your lunch in the bathroom anymore because that's the only place where you can get five minutes of peace. Like those are the things that are like, if I change these things, 
these are the outcomes that I'm going to get, then I'm I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get there because I'm I'm killing myself here. Carol, you got a lot of books behind you. I hear that there will be one more added uh, next year. Do you happen to know yes. what that book is? It's this book coming out in the fall, uh, September, called Buyer First, subtitled To Be Determined. And it is a book for individual sellers, as well as small business owners who sell, who have tried everything, right? They've read all of the books, they've done all of the podcasts, all of the processes, all of the methodologies, and don't understand why they're still struggling to get more clients and customers, because they don't realize that it's their mindsets that are actually getting in their way of being able to do that. So this book, which I wrote, it's coming out next fall and is really aimed at helping them to understand those mindsets and how to change them, as well as what are the behaviors that they need to adopt in order to bring more value to sell with their buyers and be a buyer first seller. Um, it's a book I wish I had 20 years ago and, and now seeing so many others who have, they're either quiet quitting or they're starting their own gigs. Like you look at the number of people who have started businesses since the pandemic and it's like, I don't know, five or six fold what it used to be. And they're going to have to figure out how do I sell this thing, this passion that I have. And so that's what this book is for, as well as independent sellers who are, I mean, we're working remotely now. And so I found with a lot of the sellers that I'm working with, they're struggling with a lot of the challenges that business owners are of, you know, isolation, lack of resources, you know, all of the doubts that come in um, because of all of that and the uncertainty that they have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. They're starting to struggle with a lot of the same mindsets they didn't before. Well, every, actually later on this afternoon, so every third Tuesday at noon, I do a live stream on LinkedIn and Facebook and YouTube that is the buyer first, ask me anything. And one of the things that I've decided to do with this is we always hear on LinkedIn and the social media sites about, oh, this was the horrible buying experience that I had and this seller sucked because of this, that and the next thing. What I want to do is actually bring those people onto the podcast and find out what is it about that process that annoys you the most? And then tell me about a time where you bought something that you loved. Because we talk about being buyer first, but we need to talk to the buyers to understand what is really valuable to them in these conversations. And then allow sellers to ask them questions without pitching. No pitching allowed. Got it. And what is the name of that podcast again, Carol? It's called The Buyer First Ask Me Anything live stream. It's happening on noon every third Tuesday on LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. Got it. And uh, your website, unb unboundgrowth.com. Yes. If you are, what's your ideal customer profile? My ideal customer is a small business who is looking to grow and scale their team, either by hiring or by uplifting or up-leveling their existing team so that they can start to go into larger and bigger markets. And they're not going to bring you in to be the heavy and can everybody, right? <laughs> no, that's not in my job description at all. That's in mine. Call me up. <laughs> you need someone to put everone on pips. You guys should tell you guys should work together on that. The I'm the road roadhouse of uh sales uh, leaders. Road, are you referencing the movie yes, Roadhouse? Like yes, I Patrick am. Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze. <laughs> I look just throat moves. Well, then I I'm look the just like him. <laughs> You're the bartender. <laughs> Carol Mahoney, thank you so much for coming on the Sassholes podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It was it went by fast and it was too much fun. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. We'd like to thank Demand Farm, Analytics, and Aaron J for their continued support. 
DemandFarm.com. Unlock key account growth with Demand Farm's large deal, key account, and relationship intelligence products. Go to DemandFarm.com now to schedule a demo. Ask for Iron Man. Brent Keltner's Winalytics Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass. In five hours over five weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team build the mindset and skills for a new buyer environment. Kick off in product-driven selling versus authentic conversations for all go-to-market teams. Team-level sessions for self-assessment and team dialogue. All go-to-market team wrap-up to identify top go-to-market strategy adjustments. Go to winalytics.com now.